This podcast is for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to season two of Fool Me Twice. There's an accessibility transcript that can be found at our website, foolmetwicepod.com. Episode 3, Mining for Information. Late one night in 1947, Frances Geraghty was burning the midnight oil. She was one of three women working for Philadelphia advertising agency NWIA, and naturally it was her job to write the copy for all the ads that were marketed to women. She was a long-time procrastinator, and the fact that she was a night owl meant she often worked into the wee hours. By 3am, she was done. She changed into her nightdress and tidied what she could of her desk before getting into bed. Damn! A memory of a tagline that she had been tasked to write forced its way into her mind. Tired and a little frustrated, she climbed out of bed and stood over her desk, pencil in hand. Please, God, send me a line, she said. A flash of something came to her. She scribbled a few words down on a scrap of paper and, without a second thought, went to sleep. By the morning light, she gathered up her notes and copy that she'd written the night before. She needed to take them into the office and have the assistants type her scroll into a presentable format. She saw the scribbled line from 3am and thought to herself, that'll do. That morning, there was to be a meeting about the De Beers account, and she was late. Armed with pages of her freshly typed copy, she waited until she was called upon to deliver the tagline. Its reception was lukewarm at best, by the room full of men. One of them wondered aloud whether the line was grammatically correct, and another agreed that he was right to question it. There was zero tolerance for errors in copy at the agency. She would later reflect that the fact the line had been so underwhelming probably worked in its favour. If everyone in the office had been tasked to write a line for the diamond account, hers would have almost definitely been overlooked. After some back and forth, the line was adopted and was used in every De Beers advertisement from 1948 onward. It's now one of the most recognizable and familiar collections of words in history. Something about it feels like it's been around forever, and most of us don't even remember how we know it. The line which came to Francis Garrity after a late-night prayer for inspiration is, A diamond is forever. Years later, in 1999, two weeks before Francis Garrity died, her line was named the slogan of the century. Chapter 1. Bad Debt There's this strange loophole with travel agents in Hong Kong, and it might happen in other places too. You can call a travel agent and request to book a flight, 
say, a business class flight to Vancouver. The travel agent will provisionally book you a seat on that flight and will then email you an itinerary for you to look over. If you pay for the flight within the next day or two, your flight is booked, and either way you've got the itinerary. Tiffany had told Sally that there was a limit to international transfers, and that while she was in Canada, she couldn't pay the full amount back. But she was paying Sally back, in daily increments. She had given Sally an itinerary showing a business class return flight to Vancouver, to show when she could be expected back in the country. Following a hunch, Sally had one of her assistants pose as Tiffany's assistant and call the number of the travel agent that had issued the itinerary. The travel agent was, according to Sally, pretty annoyed and said that no, Tiffany had not booked any flight. She was getting sick of Tiffany changing her bookings so often and not confirming anything. Tiffany had never been in Canada. So that's when we flew back to Hong Kong. We flew on my birthday. It was the 28th of October. And then a week later, I'm in this position where she's given me this check for 31000 At this point in time, I've also got about the $350,000 from her. And I'm thinking, why would she pay me? Like if she was planning on scamming me, why would she pay me $350,000? It's no small amount of money. I didn't get it. And why is she being so friendly and nice and saying, don't worry, don't worry, you'll get your money. It was so confusing. Anyway, I told her I'm going to the police and I'm reporting it. And I went to the police. I sat in front of this Inspector Chan and told him what had happened. And I said, so what are you going to do about it? And he was basically saying, well, we don't have any information on this woman. And I'm like, but you're the police. Look her up. Here's her ID card. Okay, the number's not on it. But all the rest of the information, I said, my staff can verify the photo on it. It's her. And also I Googled her name and I found a record that she was on a bankruptcy list, which was another, oh my God, moment for me. Oh shit, this woman is a con artist. And so I had this information for the police. I said, look, I think this is her. Here's the first three numbers of her Hong Kong ID card number, which was listed on this bankruptcy list. I said, please check if it's the same woman. And they said, oh, no, because of whatever, whatever, we don't have enough information on her. It could be anyone. I'm like, what do you mean it could be anyone? Don't you have a database or something? Like, type in her name. (laughs) See if it's her. Oh, there could be, like, loads of Tiffany, Yan Yi, Wongs out there. Like, well, why don't you check? (laughs) It was really frustrating. It was like they just could not give a shit. Like, this is a lot of money. We're talking 3.5 million Hong Kong dollars. Like, this is a big scam. Help me. I was angry. I was, you know, I was like pulling all the, let me speak to your manager card. And then his boss did come eventually. And he told me the same bullshit story. Well, it could be anyone. Like it can't be anyone. I was like, you know, like this is like me seeing someone shot in the street and giving you a description of the person. What are you just going to let anyone? That could have been anyone. Like do some investigation, find out who it is. It was so frustrating. And At that time, you know, in early November in Hong Kong, we were in the midst of protests. So the police were busy, I get it. And it was just like they just could not give a shit about my case. And it was making me really frustrated. So after I'd been to see them, they told me that they would do some investigating. But in the meantime, I thought, I've got to take this into my own hands because they're not going to do a thing. And I then reached out to my insurance company to tell them what had happened. And they were like, oh, bad luck for you. This just sounds like a bad debt. You've got some money out of your client, but you haven't got all of it. So it's just a bad debt. The insurance company were trying to tell me that it wasn't a theft because we had freely handed the diamonds over to this woman. 
thinking that we received the money, but we hadn't. So the deceit for us was we were fooled. We thought we were being sent a cash transfer. And I was thinking then, oh my God, shit, shit, shit. And I then reached out to a friend of mine who works in insurance. And I said, how can they do this? This is why I have insurance to protect myself against fraud. And I asked him to have a look at my insurance policy. And he told me that at that point, I really need to know all the details about this woman. And I said, well, I don't know them. The police won't help me. So he gave me the referral of a private investigator, gave me her number and I contacted her straight away. And she agreed to meet with me the following day in my office. Within five minutes had basically a full report for me about Tiffany. She told me that she'd only been released from jail eight months earlier. And I was like, oh my God, Um, had been jailed for 36 months for diamond fraud, car theft, jewelry and handbag thefts and all these like long list of frauds. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, this is who I'm dealing with. And I was horrified. I'm like, oh my God, this woman seems so sweet. She's like Jekyll and Hyde. She is a really bad person. I was at the risk of losing my business. This business that I've worked the last decade plus to build could have disappeared in an instant. I was crapping myself and I had to borrow some money from the bank to pay my suppliers because I didn't want to screw them over. And in this business, it's all about trust. It's all about relationships. And I didn't want to ruin my relationship. The relationships that I've spent years, decades building to get the trust of my dealers, I didn't want a reputation out there that, ah, Sally Ryder's been defrauded and now she's not paying her suppliers. So the first thing I did was pay my suppliers. I asked doctors Shiloh and Scott to talk about why we tend to be so trusting and default to believing people rather than thinking they might be lying. There's a biological imperative for that. We are tribal animals Much like most of the animal kingdom, even the vast majority of the animal kingdom, we are meant to survive. There's a reason that we are altruistic and have positive regard for our tribe, for our clan members, because we have a better chance of surviving if we do that. Now, that's why also, I mean, if we look at it purely scientific, you know, staying the scientific model, that's why there is such a really low occurrence of people that their brains are wired differently for antisocial or for, you know, sort of these lack of empathy, lack of compassion individuals. You know, if they made up the bulk of the population, the race wouldn't survive. So the question is, why are humans inherently so trusting? And Scott laid that out beautifully. But when something's inherent, there's no explanation other than it is for survival, usually. And that has been further researched and developed, and specifically by Dr. Timothy Levine with the truth default theory, that we naturally operate under the assumption that people we engage with are being honest. And that's a a lovely world to operate in. Imagine if we defaulted to thinking that people were lying all the time. I mean, that would destroy us, that would destroy our humanity. So, trust is such a centerpiece of human society. Call it optimism, call it glass half full. I'll take this and get snowed or duped every once in a while over walking through life thinking everybody's a liar because that sounds like an awful way to live. We find that a lot in law enforcement. You know, I have been a law enforcement psychologist in the past. 
Um, Dr. Shiloh is a law enforcement psychologist, and we deal with people who see the worst of the worst in the world, and it leaks over into their understanding of the world, which is not always accurate. You know, that's a generalization, which is what we call a cognitive distortion. It's a thought error. The idea that are you going to let your kid go to a sleepover? And I can't even tell you how many times I would be counseling law enforcement. They're like, oh, no, I'm never going to let my kid go to a sleepover because what could happen? It's like, well, the chance of that happening is actually really, really low. And you are taking away an experience, a pro-social experience for your child to use to have a healthy development and individuation. But, you know, unfortunately, law enforcement seeing the worst of the worst tend to be overprotective, I think. People who fall for con scams or, or con artists are not stupid. They're not. They're people who are generally higher income and intelligent. And it's just that the con artist, if they're a really good one, knows how to worm their way in and gain that confidence. That is where the artistry comes from, is they are building and establishing a, a foundation, a scaffolding of confidence in order to build their web on. One of the examples, I mean, it's not really a, a, a super professional scam, but you know, if you're a, a savvy traveler and say you're going on a vacation and you're going to go to Paris, if you do any research on vacationing in Paris, one of the first things that comes up is watch out for scam artists. They're all around Notre Dame. You know, unfortunately, Notre Dame is in bad shape now. But the other, you know, major tourist sites, and I had read about them, and I remember going, and I thought, well, they're exaggerating. Well, they weren't exaggerating. It was tons of really adorable young women that looked like they were maybe 15 to 19 years old, all, you know, trying to run the scam where they get you to hold something, and then they demand that you pay, and then another colleague comes up, but they were everywhere. It was like everywhere you looked was another dark-haired, beautiful young woman trying to run the scam. And funny, because all the backpackers were like, you know, shooing them away. I thought that's a great like microcosm example of what Shiloh was talking about is that if you get too many of them in the same place, for one thing, where they're broadcasting it all over the world that this is an issue, you know, you're not going to be able to find as many marks, right? Simon is from Scotland and became a diamond miner in 2007. This is his story. It was a trip down to London. I bumped into an old friend who said, why don't we take a trip over to Kenya? There's some cheap flights going. And I turned around and says, that sounds like a good idea. I flipped a coin and I said, heads, we go. Tails, I'm going back to Glasgow. So flipped the coin, came up heads. And then we got a flight from London Heathrow to Kenya, got to Mombasa. And then my buddy bumped into one of his friends. So this guy pulls out these uh, stones and I says, what the hell is that? Because I, I didn't know nothing about diamonds at all. There was actually a few rocks he pulled out. I looked at the rocks and I says, tell me that's not diamonds underneath that. And my friend says, exactly. Says, right, I better find out a bit more about this. So, this guy was Congolese and he was from some place called Kinshasa. He says, So, if you wanted to come out, you're welcome to come have a look around and pick the ones you want. And I was told 
you've got to watch out because sometimes they mix fake ones in with the real ones and all the rest of it. So I said, I'm not an expert, right? I mean, I made a phone call to one of my friends in India who happens to have an uncle who's the head of the geology department of India. So I thought, okay, this is too easy now. I got in touch with the uncle who says, well, you've got to look out for this and you've got to look out for that. And I says, well, I don't have the expertise, right, or the, or the time to figure out if that's real or not. So could you do me a favour and send somebody over from India? Because a flight from India to Africa was fairly easy back then. So he sent someone over who was good at eyeballing, you know, the diamonds with their with the eyepiece. So we ended up taking a flight to Congo. And this is where I shot myself. This is where both of us were in a place, no man's land. I mean, both of us brown skinned, right? But we still looked like we were two white guys standing out in this place. Everyone's looking. So we met up with that guy. We met up in Kenya. And he took us to the village that he's from. And there's a chief there. They'll be not dressed down to the T with the tribal gear and all that stuff. I mean, the ride to the ride, I'm telling you, I've never been through a ride like it. It was, it was like being up in the Himalayas, 10,000 feet up off the cliff edges and so on. That's what it felt like. But anyway, we got to this village, met this chief guy, and the guy translated for us. And I quickly figured out, right, that a lot of Western people have come up here, you know, just dug for the minerals and didn't give nothing back. In my head, I thought, right, I'll swap you a container full of rice or medical supplies because I could get my hands on that. So anyway, I ended up saying to the chief, I said, um, how about you, know, you let me dig on, a, on your parcel of land and I'll swap you for that, a container full of paracetamol. So the guy explained to the chief and something sparked in this guy's eye and he's quickly turned around. This is before the Chinese had come over to Africa, you know, so... So for me to offer him like a 40-foot container full of rice, right, which I had on my farm anyway in India, so that was for free. All that was just postage. And the medical supplies were you know, straightforward for me. That was pretty easy. The chief of the village, right, said something in his tribal language. He says that I have to go here to get the machines. And he says, these men of the village will go with you. And the guy that we met in Kenya, he says, I've never seen it like this before. He goes, uh, your offer must be very good. And also they had, uh, we set up a couple of shops in this village. They set up like a, a barber set up and a wee nursery set up, had a wee school set up. They set up like a wee community you know, with, with the funds I'd given to the chief. Chapter two, two months salary. Ever heard of the rule that a diamond engagement ring should cost two months salary? Any thought as to where that might have come in? I'll tell you. It was the ad men and women at NWIR. Before they told people, in this case men, how much to spend on a diamond, it was anyone's guess. But it was important that men knew this, and NWIR made it so. Part of this was because the ad executives knew that women could have had a far more practical suggestion for what to put a huge chunk of money towards as they embarked on a life together. And if they had a hand in the diamond decision-making process, they might have vetoed the purchase in favour of something less extravagant. The solution to this problem was to remove women entirely from the decision-making process. Under the agency's instruction, films came out which depicted men perusing the glittering rows of diamond rings in anticipation of the surprise his sweetheart would get 
when he kneels and opens the little velvet box. The way marriage operates, from the decision to propose, to meeting at the end of the aisle and beyond, was influenced by N.W. Ayer, and shaped to be in the best interests of the Diamond Cartel. Listen to this memo from N.W. Ayer that was sent to De Beers in 1952, detailing their strategy. In our opinion, all diamonds are in safe hands only when widely dispersed and held by individuals as cherished possessions valued far above their market price. We are dealing with the problem of mass psychology. We seek to strengthen the tradition of the engagement ring to make it a psychological necessity capable of competing successfully at the retail level with utility goods and services. We spread the word of diamonds worn by stars of screen and stage, by wives and daughters of political leaders, by any woman who can make the grocer's wife and the mechanic's sweetheart say, I wish I had what she has. Much of our market each year is made up of new people moving into the marriage age bracket. Future sales depend on persuading millions of new individuals that an engagement diamond is essential. This is not practical as a short-term objective because it takes years for individual opinions to develop into a definite course of action. Specifically, in this instance, into an insistent demand for an engagement diamond. Our advertising objective is to leave the impression with young people that the diamond is the only meaningful symbol of the love inherent in the engagement promise. The advertising should be targeted at these young people, but in such a way that it will encourage appreciation of the diamond engagement ring tradition by the entire public. It is true that in modern times, far more of the engagement ring decisions are made together than separately, as they used to be. This is no doubt reflecting the fact that gender roles have changed dramatically, and the strict delineation of who in the relationship should be the breadwinner is long gone. Shifting gender roles and perceptions of marriage, as well as the fact that marriage is in many places no longer limited to being between a man and a woman, mean that the rules are no longer cut and dry. Here's Patrick, who has a story about the significance of diamonds and rings to his relationship. Cutting quite a long story short, uh, I came to Hong Kong 15 years ago, um, ended up in a bit of a dodgy nightclub in Elgin Street on a works do, met someone I really liked, then a bit of to and fro and a few a few phone calls here and there and a couple of drunk New Year's Day phone calls from Sydney. Um, after that, we decided that we wanted to have a go at things together. Um, He's not exactly what I expected to be in Hong Kong. He's a South American man, a professional guy working here. So it wasn't exactly what I anticipated. And really, we moved in together eventually. We've lived in a very small space for 13 years without too many arguments. And about 11 years ago, we went to Macau and he proposed to me in Macau, which was a lovely surprise. And then a year later, we got married in Hanoi in Vietnam. Now, still to this day, the British consulate don't allow British nationals to have civil partnerships in Hong Kong. It depends on your nationality. I think some countries do, some don't. So we had quite a traditional engagement um, where I was given a ring and then a lovely wedding in Hanoi. And we've been happy ever since. A year of engagement and we've been married about nine years. 
When it came to engagement and wedding rings, I got a beautiful diamond ring from Bulgari, which was absolutely beautiful and lovely. And I wore that and I didn't give a ring, so I got off a bit lightly there. But then I did get a wedding ring from my husband at a later date. And I got a wedding ring as well. A friend of mine who's a, a jeweler here organized a white gold ring for me, which I've worn since then. So it was not chosen together. It was all done separately and a little bit of guessing what we'd like. But yes, yeah, so I've got a, quite a traditional, well, it's little diamonds set into a, a ring. Yet. So it's kind of, you know, it's quite discreet and quite subtle. But interestingly, in Hong Kong, I'm legally still not married. And when I'm doing my tax return, I still tick the single box because it's not recognised here. But really, we are married and in all intents and purposes under the civil partnership rulings. But the rings, yeah, the rings have been important to us. And I think that, that when it comes to engagements and weddings, I think people... Even though you have very contemporary and different relationships and things have opened up a lot really in the last 20 years, people become quite traditional at times like that, I think. And but when I think about my family, I think wedding rings in the old days were not expensive. I think they were a lot cheaper. I think the husbands uh, maybe spent a month's salary on it, but it, most of the wedding rings in my family, I seem to remember, are quite plain. I mean, when you go back way back in history, I mean, the Vikings and all the Celts used rings for fidelity towards, well, a husband or a wife or a chief or, or a clan, I suppose. So there's a nice historical feel to, to having a ring. Chapter 3. The Private Investigator So Sally's friends with as someone I know through work as well, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he had written to me one day and said, can I introduce Sally, who has a need for my services? And obviously I said, well, yes, of course, because a new client is always a good thing. And so Sally and I made an appointment to meet and very quickly she kind of ran me through what happened. So I'm a private investigator and I've been doing this now for six years and Sally's case was probably the first it's not my first diamond case but it's definitely the first case whereby so many people so many people were involved and how quickly it moved as well and so I was tasked with finding Tiffany and very quickly within half an hour we established that Tiffany had a had a criminal record at that point she should have been in prison but for some reason she wasn't and we never actually did find out why she wasn't in prison because according to the records that at that time when she had gone to visit Sally to buy those diamonds, she should have been in prison. And so we found out all of those things about her. We found her home address. We checked out the home address and it was an address where her parents still lived at and all of those things. Yeah, and that's when I guess the chase started properly. In the course of the PI's investigation, she found out that Tiffany was actually a beauty therapist who worked in Kuantong the second most populated of Hong Kong's 18 districts. We asked her how easy it was for her to find out information about Tiffany's criminal history. So all of these are a matter of public records. We are able to do litigation searches, and a litigation search tells us when the last time someone had appeared in court. And when someone appears in court, that is a matter of public record. The kind of hearing is also a matter of public record, so which we could find very easily and on top of which, because we had all of those things, we can surmise quite succinctly and quite accurately for most of the time what the judgment was and consequently how many months they were given a sentence for and stuff like that. Quite honestly, that information was 
useful to know, but I don't think it made any difference whatsoever to Sally, because it didn't make a difference to the fact that she had effectively given diamonds away. So all of that information was useful for us to make a police report with. It was useful for the lawyers if they wanted to pursue some kind of legal avenue. But in terms of making a difference to Sally's case itself, not much, to be honest. We had Tiffany's full name. And then once we had Tiffany's full name, we could do a public record search and find a home address for her. We then decided to visit the home address. So we did. And we found, I think, her parents still live there. But I don't think she had lived there anymore because, well, because she'd been in prison. So it wasn't me who went. It was a colleague of mine who went. But it was just a quick conversation. It was just us knocking on the door saying, we have this address. We're looking for this person. We're looking for Tiffany. And the person who answered the door responded with, she no longer lives here. And then we tried to ask with their identities and all of those and they were not very forthcoming with information, but that's to be expected because a stranger knocking on your door asking for information is not exactly the most conducive of a situation to divulge information. But through public records, we were able to establish the people who lived in that flat were Tiffany's parents. That was basically my job done because when I had seen Sally the truth of it is, I could find out all of this information, but I have very limited powers as to actually making a real difference because I can't force Tiffany to give up the diamonds. I can't force her to effectively do anything. Tiffany, if you have nothing to hide, why aren't you sharing your identity? I don't believe you will report yourself to the police on Thursday as you've promised. Show me you are being honest and send me your Hong Kong ID card. If I hide, they will find me. I will show up after I settle all the payment within these two days. I have no reason to trust you now. You have stolen and you are still lying. Not stolen. Why are you still hiding your identity if you assure me that you can make the payment within two days? The payment was due two weeks ago. You haven't paid. This is theft. This is my personal information. If I go to police station, they can take my ID card and check my bank cannot hide anymore. It's my real name, real phone number. This phone number used over 15 years. How can I hide? If I cheat you, I am not use my phone and my name and my check. They will find me right. So you don't worry about that because they are handled now and I called them already. Tiffany, you are a criminal. I know you have probably done this many times before and know the procedure, which is why you're not showing your ID. No, if I use many times, why I use my name? How do we know if it's your real name if you won't share your ID with us? I can use the others. The police will know my name and my check. You said I done many times. Time can prove everything. No need talk too much. Because you don't trust me. But I told many excuses before. I know. So you should be think me like that. But I just want to settle now. Tiffany, I understand your situation and I now understand why you don't want to give me your ID. So Sally finds herself between a rock and a hard place. 
the police don't see her case as worth pursuing, and hiring a private investigator brings a whole lot of information, but not a whole lot of possibilities for action. The information, which the PI was able to put together easily and within a very short amount of time, shows that Tiffany is a convicted criminal who has not only been to prison before, but was in prison for exactly this crime, stealing diamonds. If Sally wanted to get Tiffany arrested, she probably could have. But Tiffany wasn't hurting Sally any further. In fact, she was chipping away at what she owed, with small payments of 50000 here, 100000 there. Chapter 4. Sally's Background in Diamonds Here's a bit of Sally's backstory, including how she got into the diamond business. I was born in Melbourne and lived in Australia until the age of 12. And when I was 12, my dad lost his job. He was a pilot with Australian Airlines and we had a big dispute, 1989 it was, and dad lost his job, which meant that he had no job, he had no income, and all Australian pilots that worked for Australian Airlines and ANSET resigned from their jobs. And it was Bob Hawke and Peter Abels at the time, and they just recruited foreign pilots to take their jobs. There were no jobs for them in Australia anymore. And for income, my dad bought a chicken farm, and we moved to Red Hill on the Mornington Peninsula. And so that's where our family home was then. And, you know, I'm so grateful to my parents for doing this to me. At the time, it was so traumatic, but in hindsight, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And since birth, my parents had had me down for MLC, a lovely private girls' school in Melbourne. And dad lost his job just as I was about to go into year seven. And they just didn't know if they were going to be able to financially support a private girls' school in Melbourne. So they sent me to Doncaster High, which was this really, really crappy local high school in pretty rough area of Melbourne and it really kind of shocked the socks off me you know there were kids doing drugs in the toilets at lunchtime and like all sorts of terrible stuff that was going on just ratbag kids as well that went to this school and then halfway through the year we moved down to Red Hill dad bought the chicken farm and then they sent me to Turak College in Mount Eliza which is another beautiful private girls school and I remember going down to get fitted for my uniform and They had the uniform, we had to wear socks above our knees and a tie and a a blazer and you got detentions for not having your socks pulled above your knees if you left the school ground and, you know, it was chalk and cheese, these two schools. And I remember sitting down in the classroom and looking around at my new classmates thinking, you bitches don't know how lucky you've got it. (laughs) I felt so privileged to be there. You know, I had a really great time in Red Hill and – Turak College was a beautiful school and they really pushed us academically and I loved languages and the arts and those sort of things and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to a university in Japan for my first year of uni called Osaka Kokosai Joshidagaku, which translates to Osaka International University for Women and I did my first year of university there in Osaka. And it scared the pants out of me, actually, to like, you know, I thought I was international. You know, my dad worked in, and he was then with Singapore Airlines by the time I finished school. And, you know, we'd done a lot of international travel with dad's job. It was fantastic. And I thought, yeah, I'll go and exchange to Japan for a year. That sounds really fun. And I really gave myself culture shock when I arrived because it was so foreign. You know, I lived with a Japanese family that didn't speak any English. I went to a Japanese university. I was one of, I think they had 10 exchange students from around the world. 
And I didn't get to see a lot of them. So I was very integrated into Japanese society very quickly. And it was shocking. Like I scared myself. So yeah, I learned Japanese and, and that was great. And then, yeah, while I was at uni, I did two degrees. I did a Bachelor of Arts, Japanese and German, and a business international trade degree. And while I was studying, I was working at the diamond company on the side. You know, my love of diamonds is not really because I love diamonds themselves. What I actually really love is the business side of what I do. And it's the relationships with the people that I'm selling to. You know, I feel like I'm not making a sale to a customer. I'm doing them a favor. I feel like I'm really getting them a great deal and teaching them how to buy well, because there's so many places that people get scammed with diamonds, you know, just buying it at a luxury jewelry, you're being scammed, you know, you're way overpaying for the value of the product that you're buying. It's all marketing. And to some people it's worth it, but if they spent the same money with me, they'd get a diamond probably double the size. And the, the really interesting thing about a diamond is that, you know, being at 100% crystallized carbon means not only can they not tell where in the world it's come from, it can't be branded, you know, because the being 100% crystallized carbon and graded with four C's means that a diamond that Tiffany sells versus a diamond that I sell versus a diamond that Harry Winston sells are no different. You can't brand them. I'd always had a dream of creating my own business. And for years, I just thought about what it might be. And by luck, I fell into diamonds. It was my first ever job. While I was studying at university at Monash in Melbourne, I was working part-time for a diamond company called the Australian Diamond Company in Melbourne. And that's where I got my diamond experience. And I worked for them for, I think it was about four years, actually, on and off, part-time. And it was a brilliant job. I loved helping people and it was such a happy occasion in their life, usually, that they were coming to buy diamonds. So I loved the industry, but I really hated the guy that I was working for at the time. He was a, it just wasn't ethical. And they were buying crappy diamonds and non-certified and people were just getting ripped off. And, you know, I looked around the market and... There was the really high-end jewelers, like, you know, the luxury brands, Tiffany's, Cartier's, those sort of businesses. And then there was a the really low end and not a lot of in-betweeners. And when I came to Hong Kong, you know, I just couldn't shake this idea of wanting to create my own boutique diamond business and looked around Hong Kong and I found the same. Like there was lots of high-end and lots of low-end, but nothing sort of in the middle. And what I wanted to really offer to people was an opportunity to do bespoke jewelry. So come and meet with someone and have something designed and their stones chosen and then crafted. And the secret to that being successful was finding good craftsmen. When I came to Hong Kong and working for Merrill Lynch on my lunch breaks, I was meeting diamond merchants and gold merchants and, and looking for jewelers. And at one of the trade shows actually in Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong has the biggest diamond trade show in the world. They hold them in March and September every year. Not this year, obviously. And I really wanted to get involved in the manufacturing process and actually see the jewelers at work. So we're an end-to-end -end service. When our client comes in, we first teach them about how to be smart about buying a diamond. And that comes from my 20 years of expertise working in diamonds. I really teach them about how to buy smart. There's four C's in a diamond. And basically it's a combination of those four that make a diamond both beautiful and good value for money. So there's things that you should focus on that contribute to the beauty and things that you should definitely compromise that don't affect the beauty at all, but drastically affect the price. We start with the carat weight, which is the size of the stone, the color, which is the whiteness of the diamond. We start at D for diamond. And as you move down the alphabet, the saturation of color becomes stronger. So you'd see like if you compared say a J to a D, the J would look a little bit yellowish. And then the clarity, which refers to natural inclusions in a diamond. And the more of them, the bigger they are, and the more centrally located they are, the lower the clarity grading will be. And then the fourth C is cut. And a lot of people confuse cut with being the shape of the stone. 
So, you know, like there's round diamonds, the round brilliant, there's the square shape, which is called the princess cut, the cushion cut, the marquee, there's lots of different shapes of diamonds and people confuse cut with shape. But in actual fact, when we're grading diamonds, when we're, we're talking about the fourth C as cut, we're talking about how well faceted the stone is to maximize light return. So if the cutting is precision cut and there's the perfect table size and crown angle and depth in the stone, you'll get a really beautiful, fiery, sparkly stone. So cut is key. So the one thing they shouldn't ever compromise on is cut. So that's how to get really beautiful stone. The thing that you should compromise on is clarity. And it's a big misconception and it's very common in Asia that and people desire high clarity diamonds thinking they're getting diamonds that sparkle more. So they think that buying high clarity is going to get them a more sparkly diamond and that's not true. It's the cut that produces the sparkle. So if you walk down Queens Road in Central and look in the shop windows of, you know, the Chow Tai Fook, et cetera, there'll be lots and lots of D-flawless, VVS1, the really high clarity stones because really in Asia or Hong Kong, it's the only place that they'll ever sell. Because culturally, the people here have been culturally educated to want and desire high clarity diamonds because they think they sparkle more, but they've been miseducated. They don't sparkle more. They're much more rare, which is why they're much more expensive, but it doesn't affect the beauty so much. So if you go a clarity grade, say of an SI1, which looks much lower on the scale, compare it to a flawless, visually it can look identical. However, the price will be a lot, lot higher for the flawless. So it's compromising on the clarity to a certain extent. You don't want to see inclusions with the naked eye, but as long as you can't see them with the naked eye, it should look no different to flawless, but be much more attractively priced. So that's how you get good value for money. You focus on cut, you compromise on clarity. So that's the first part of our process. When someone comes to visit us, we first educate them on diamonds and how to buy smart. I've been developing my supplier relationships for decades. So that's really important for our customer to get great service. My supplier relationships are really important. So whatever they're coming to see me for, whether it's a one carat bringing cut diamond or a 10 carat D flawless usher cut diamond, I've got all the right supplier relationships. So I buy from the source. Once we've decided on the stone, we talk about design and I'm really passionate also about the age old traditions of fine jewelry design. So everything we do is done by hand. We don't use CAD machines or, you know, like computer assisted design. Everything is done by hand. And once we've chosen the stones, done the design, it's all hand sketched. And that hand sketch, once approved by the client, is then passed to our workshop. And Frankie and Ming work on creating the piece of jewelry. So that's how Rider Diamonds works. You know, it's an old school business. It's an old school bespoke jewelry company. I love the way that we do things here. It's really different. And it's the rarity today. It used to be the only way, but today it's the rarity. Next episode. As the story gets more and more complex, Sally begins to develop her game plan, and it's not what you might assume. I also get curious about who Tiffany really is, and also what actually makes things valuable. Let's hang out next episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it. It's called Keep Your Friends Close. This podcast was created, researched, and edited by Jules Hannaford. And we couldn't have done it without Sally Ryder and everyone else who helped us to tell this story. We're infinitely grateful to our experts, Drs. Scott and Shiloh, as well as Roger Grimes, and those who lent us their voices, Kinny Orbalo, Sonia D'Andrea, and Matt Schnuth. 
The theme song is sung by Angel Meyerhoff and the sound design is by Shade Furlong. Please consider going to our Patreon and supporting us with a once-off or monthly contribution. I'm Zara Hannaford and I wrote this thing and I've been your host.